I'm standing right now in the small museum, which is a little room off the sacristy of the church. It's actually very small. On one side of the room is a glass display case, and in this case, there are several artifacts, you could say, as well as some reproductions, some photos of other artifacts. They appear to be prayer books with burn marks, fingerprints, handprints. These are designs of various kinds, left by souls in purgatory as a request, as a sign of a need for prayers for them. This week on CNA Newsroom, we're talking about purgatory. We'll look at what the church teaches about purgatory and why. We'll share the story of a youth ministry group whose special charism is praying for the dead. And we'll take you to a museum in Rome documenting the holy souls in purgatory reaching out to people on earth. This is the podcast that brings you the holy souls behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Stay with us. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Guys, the church officially defined the doctrine of purgatory in the 13th century at the Second Council of Lyon. The church teaches that when a person dies in God's grace, they either go straight to heaven, ideally, or they undergo a state of purification before they enter heaven. This state of purification is called purgatory. Purgatory provides a final means of sanctification and purification for those who have died and been judged by our Lord to be worthy of heaven. This is Dr. Roger Nutt. He's vice president for academic affairs and a professor of theology at Ave Maria University. So why would a person who dies in God's friendship in a state of grace need purification? Dr. Nutt uses the example of a child throwing a baseball through a window when teaching his students about purgatory. The child can apologize for throwing the baseball through the window and be forgiven. But, Dr. Nutt says, the window's still broken. There still remains uh, disorder and injustice, and God loves us so much that he makes purgatory available so that even those temporal disorders that remain can be fully rectified. There's been a lot of misconceptions about purgatory, that it's a punishment, and it's not. It's a preparation. This is Susan Tassone. Susan has written a bunch of books on purgatory. So we asked her what souls in purgatory actually experience. They have this pain that the saints say is unlike any pain or suffering on earth. Their primary pain is the loss of the sight of God. They have an unquenchable thirst for God. They have an unspeakable yearning for God. And their hunger, their thirst, their famine, this is for God. It's basically a heart sickness. Now you think of the song Elvis Presley, Hunka Hunka Burning Love. You know, they have this ardent love uh, for God. but they willingly suffer because there's no rebellion and purgatory. Their attitude is one of penance, humility, and perfect resignation to God's will. You probably often hear souls in purgatory described as the holy souls or the poor souls. Susan says that people in purgatory are considered holy because they can't sin anymore, and they're perfectly conformed to God's will. 
And they're poor because they have no idea how long they'll be in purgatory. And there's nothing they can do to help themselves get to heaven faster. Thankfully, Catholics on Earth, Catholics like you and me, can help them. You offer your communion, you offer your indulgence, you offer your rosary in the Stations of the Cross. You can do works of penance on behalf of the dead or make specific acts of almsgiving, like charity. But the best offering for souls in purgatory, Susan says, is Mass. We primarily think of the Mass in terms of the reception of Holy Communion. But the Church actually teaches that the primary accent of the Mass is that it's a propitiatory sacrifice that the Lord gave to the Church to continue offering for the remission of sins. The Church's doctrine on purgatory has been a part of her teaching since the very beginning, and she officially defined the doctrine of purgatory in 1274. But a lot of our modern ideas about purgatory, a lot of the ways that we picture it or think about it, are shaped by a poem written a few decades later by an Italian poet you've probably heard of. Dante? So of course, Aquinas has the fullest uh, developed theology of uh, Catholic doctrine in the Summa. But shortly after that, Dante comes along and then gives it imaginative form. This is Dr. John Holmes. He's a professor of English at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Dante describes purgatory in the second installment of his three-part poem, The Divine Comedy. His description is so effective that popes even today continue to warn Catholics that purgatory is not a physical place exactly as Dante describes it. Pope Benedict and also uh, Pope Francis have commented on attempts to get Catholics away from thinking of purgatory as a place and think of it as a, a state, the way the original, actually uh, going, going all the way back to Gregory the Great, that's the way the, uh, the fathers of the church thought of it. The necessity of doing that comes about because Dante was so successful as a poet. He draws this picture that seems so realistic that it's necessary to remind Christians it's just an image, it's just an idea, it's just a story. In the Divine Comedy, Dante descends down, down into the earth, spiraling downward into hell. The further he descends, the narrower his path becomes. He finds Lucifer at the center of the earth. And then something extraordinary happens. What happens is a very sudden reversal of point of view. Suddenly, down becomes up and up becomes down. That's what's extraordinary about Dante's vision of purgatory is that it's a mountain on the what was then called the Antipodes, the opposite side of the uh, earth. Purgatory becomes a climb. On each level of the purgative mountain, Dante confronts a different sin. In Inferno, the poem about hell, the sins that Dante encounters are met with a kind of equal punishment, kind of like the movie Seven, but not totally freaking crazy. In Purgatorio, the souls that Dante encounters are also suffering. Souls who struggled with gluttony are emaciated. The eyes of those who are envious are sewn shut. But there's a big difference. The suffering depicted in Purgatorio is purifying. It's leading souls to God. As soon as we discover that they're not really punishments, that they're just the, the forms of the souls that show where their weaknesses are and where they need to be fixed in, uh, in Purgatory, uh, then we understand those forms. 
when he gets to the tippy top of the mountain, he discovers this beautiful garden, and it turns out it was the original garden. That is the Garden of Eden from which Adam and Eve were uh, expelled. So all of his theology and all of his imagination uh, kind of ties together. Dante's journey is always in the same direction and always toward God. Because even when he's going down into hell, hell is kind of an impact crater from the fall of Lucifer. He falls down and he smashes into the earth and he drives with such force that he goes all the way to the center. And in so doing, the earth that he displaces gets pushed up to the other side of the earth and becomes the mountain on which purgatory is built. Dante definitely wasn't the first person to imagine what purgatory might look like. Well before Dante, this Englishman wrote a book describing purgatory as a cave in Ireland, presided over by St. Patrick. Dr. Holmes said Dante probably knew about it. His poem, after all, was basically a grittier reboot. But Dante's primary source and inspiration for the Divine Comedy was St. Thomas Aquinas. His major source, of course, is always Aquinas. He's already probably the most famous love poet of Italy at the time, and so he writes a different kind of love poem. So it's still a poem of love, but it's a much more divine love and divinized love, and uh, it changes European literature forever. Coming up after the break, we'll look at a youth ministry group whose primary charism is praying for the dead. Then we'll go back to Rome for a tour of the Museum of the Holy Souls in Purgatory. Stay with us. This is Bishop James Wall from the Diocese of Gallup. Do you listen to the CNA Newsroom or CNA Editor's Desk regularly, or both? I do. I listen to it on the iPhone app. You can listen here or on any podcast platform. Just search for CNA Newsroom and hit subscribe. Each new episode will be delivered straight to your phone. Now back to the show. I remember that leaders from other youth groups would ask my parents what it was that I was involved in. Oh, down at that St. James Parish, they've got this cult going for kids. No kidding, like I remember that. This is Father Jack Fitzpatrick. Today, he's a priest in the Diocese of Colorado Springs, but he grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri. My hometown was about, you know, maybe 60 to 75,000 people, so not, not a huge, not a huge place. Father Fitzpatrick remembers looking for a youth group when he was in high school, around 2002 or maybe 2003, but he kept kind of coming up short. We didn't really have much going on at my, at my home parish. Youth groups were not so big in general. His friends told him about a youth group they were involved in. It was called the Dead Theologian Society. You know, they were telling me that their youth group was like, um, it was kind of serious. One day, Father Fitzpatrick showed up for a meeting. He remembers going into a room that was dark. It was lit only by candles. There were icons and holy pictures set around the room. Basically a prayerful space, a safe, prayerful space. This is Eddie Cotter, Jr. He helped found the Dead Theologian Society back in 1996, and he's executive director today. And here's the deal. He set it up at the parish of my best friend from college, who joined it in the very early years, back when he was in high school. Hey, Sean. I was in Sean's wedding in the parish where the Dead Theologian Society was started. 
In fact, I kind of got in trouble at the reception because I got seconds from the buffet before some people had had firsts, which I didn't know at the time. And then, wait, never mind. Back to DTS. Many parishes, and I've gotten to travel all around the country and outside of the country, they'll set up a room and make it look like a little monastery. They'll have a crucifix, maybe some Byzantine hanging lights in front of icons, and, and they make it prayerful. It's not spooky. It's not macabre. It's just very prayerful. Then a leader told the story of the life of a saint. It was supposed to mimic um, kind of the environment of the catacombs in the early church. And the idea was like, you know, a, a group of Christians coming together to uh, be encouraged by the virtue of other Christians who had gone before. At the end of the meeting, they prayed the St. Gertrude prayer for the souls in purgatory. The concept of praying for the dead was certainly something that I knew about. I mean, I, I, went, to, I went to Catholic school, and, but certainly I, I had never been taught the, the prayer of St. Gertrude the Great for the souls in purgatory before. That was certainly new. Father Fitzpatrick was hooked. Prayer for the souls in purgatory, especially through the St. Gertrude prayer, has been a special charism of the Dead Theologian Society since the group was started. Eddie said it's a charism most teenagers can quickly and personally connect with. Most teenagers have lived long enough where they've lost somebody. It could be their grandparents, a, a sibling, parents, uh, friends. Um, so they've, they've had some experience with death that was painful. And when we can tell them, you know, there are things we can do that's, that's very real that can be of great benefit for the one you've lost. Thinking about somebody sentimentally and praying for them aren't always the same thing. But to actually pray for them is very empowering. Tradition holds that every time the St. Gertrude prayer is prayed sincerely, 1,000 souls are released from purgatory. Now, the number 1,000 really means an infinite number, so it's not like there's a, a, a tote board that we have running at the national office. But we know that if we have thousands of young people sincerely praying for souls, Lord only knows probably how many souls we have benefited. Padre Pio said we must empty purgatory, and our prayers help that to happen. You know, it could be on that given night, it could be five or five million. I just don't know. But I do believe, sincerely, there could be millions. Because the prayers of young people are powerful. Like me, Father Fitzpatrick prays the St. Gertrude prayer, even today, years after he found the prayer through the Dead Theologian Society. The Dead Theologian Society is a great way to introduce young people to the communion of saints, because you have not only the witness of the saints in heaven, and us striving to be like them, but you also have this intercession for the, the souls in purgatory and that commitment to continue to pray for them. This is Father Raymond Snyder. He's a Dominican friar in Columbus, Ohio, and he was a member of the Dead Theologian Society growing up in Kansas. He says the group has helped him remember to always pray for the dead. Spiritual things are the easiest to forget. You know, how do we remember things? To borrow a page from St. Thomas Aquinas, we're the kinds of things that know through the senses. And so the more things are bound up with our imagination and vivid memories, the more we remember them, which is part of why the liturgy has such an important place for us in the practice of the faith, to continually be reminded about the realities we cannot see. One of which, the one we're talking about, is poor souls in purgatory. We don't see them, yet we need to remember them. Unless you're watching the movie Coco, 
it can be easy to forget to pray for your dead relatives and friends. It just kind of slips my mind most of the time, probably yours too. But sometimes the holy souls in purgatory remind us in very tangible ways that they need prayers. When I say that, it kind of sounds terrifying, but in this next segment, CNA's Rome correspondent Hannah Brockhaus takes us to the Museum of the Holy Souls in Purgatory in Rome, which is home to some very unique relics. Here's Hannah. On a traffic-filled street close to the Tiber River, nestled against the backdrop of Italy's Grand Palace of Justice, sits a Catholic church and museum easy to overlook in the bustle of Rome. The museum is just one small room connected to the sacristy of the Chiesa del Sacro Cuore del Suffragio, the Sacred Heart Church of Intercession, a church devoted to prayer for the souls in purgatory. I'm standing right now in the small museum, which is a little room off the sacristy of the church. It's actually very small. On one side of the room is a glass display case, and in this case there are several artifacts, you could say, as well as some reproductions, some photos of other artifacts. And many of these that I'm looking at are books. They appear to be prayer books with burn marks, fingerprints, handprints. These are designs of various kinds left by souls in purgatory as a request, as a sign of a need for prayers for them. This is Father Pasquale Bellanti, the pastor of the church. I met up with him to speak about the items on display there, which are believed to show the physical marks and signs of appearances souls in purgatory made to people on earth. In these experiences, there is nothing that could be declared scientifically objective, so that nothing can be proven false either. It is only a matter of signs that other brothers in the faith have had and have testified to. He told me the church does not use these physical marks from souls in purgatory as the proof that purgatory exists, or as definitive signs that these appearances happened. Their significance, he said, lies in the value they have on the individual who sees them and the message that the souls in purgatory need our prayers. And therefore, it always falls to the will of the person who observes the objects here to welcome this message. This little collection of artifacts in Rome has been present here for more than a hundred years, each one hand-collected by the French priest and missionary of the Sacred Heart, Father Victor Jouet. Father Jouet traveled throughout Europe to collect the objects and to hear the testimonies of the people who had experienced souls in purgatory appearing to them and asking for the intercession of the church on earth. Father Jouet's inspiration for this task came from an extraordinary and mysterious event which happened on this very spot in Rome. Father Jouet was celebrating Mass for a group of faithful on July 2, 1897, when a fire broke out in the chapel sanctuary. Two things happened. The image of Our Lady of the Rosary above the altar was unharmed by the fire, and numerous eyewitnesses saw emerge from between the flames an image of a face grimacing in pain. Since its appearance, people have believed the image of the face to be of a suffering soul in purgatory. That image is still visible in the church today. <laughs> 
Right now we're standing to the far right of the main altar. There's a small side altar and then next to that on the right there's a smaller triptych with the Madonna in the center and two angels. And behind the left angel, which opens like a small door, behind it is the original appearance of the face that came um, during a fire and which was the original inspiration for the museum and for the building of this entire church. It happened in a smaller chapel that was here on this same site but they preserved this miraculous image when building the larger church that stands here today. Father Jouet died in 1912, so the items visible in the museum were placed there by his successor, who sorted the artifacts and kept only those with reliable documentation of their origin. One of these artifacts is the devotional book of an Italian woman named Maria Zaganti. As the story is recorded, Maria's deceased friend, Palmira Rostelli, appeared to her in 1871, just over two months after her death. She appeared dressed in white and asking for masses to be said on her behalf by her brother, who was the parish priest. When she appeared, Palmyra set her hand on the top of Maria's closed prayer book, leaving behind what appears to be the mark of three fingers burned into its cover. Several other striking objects in the museum all come from two appearances by the same man, an Italian priest and abbot named Panzini. He appeared on November 1st, 1731, to an abbess, Sister Chiara Isabella Fornari, asking for intercession. He left behind a black burn of his left hand and a burn of a cross on her writing desk, another print of his hand on a piece of paper, and a third mark on the sleeve of the abbess's habit. The hand burned through her clothes and onto her arm, making her bleed. The small bloodstains are visible on the piece of the habit. Another artifact in the Museum of the Souls in Purgatory belonged to a Belgian man whose mother appeared to him in 1789. According to his account, she appeared to be enveloped in flames and left a black, burning handprint on his shirt sleeve. The woman had died 27 years prior and in addition to asking for masses to be said on her behalf, she asked her son to turn away from his sinful life, which he subsequently did, even at the loss of friends and relatives. In my opinion, it's good that there are these museums, because they are a reminder for us. They're a sign, I would say a prophetic sign. Today, it is very important for all of us to recover the prophetic dimension of the Christian message. This is Father Santiago Sanz, a professor of theology at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome. He teaches on the branch of theology called eschatology, which means the Church's teaching on death, judgment, and the soul. At the same time, in history, we see these events, these experiences which, aside from their authenticity, lead us to think and to open the windows of our heart and our reason to the manifestations God wants to make in our human history. And therefore, that there are museums like this one, for example, or others that speak of Eucharistic miracles, to mention another phenomenon, is a way of reminding ourselves that we must be open to the revelation of God, a God who is not closed in his ivory tower, but who reveals himself in history, who has already revealed himself in a full way in Jesus Christ.
For CNA Newsroom, I'm Hannah Brockhouse. This Saturday is All Souls Day. If you can, visit the graves of your loved ones. If you can't, definitely pray for them. And do me a favor, pray for my dead loved ones too. They need it. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to all of our guests. Remember, get a copy of the prayer of St. Gertrude the Great and pray for the holy souls in purgatory. I'll see you in purgatory, everybody.